Can you all say with me, amen? Amen. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, our, our text this morning, verses 16 to 30. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, the choir's song rings in our ears, worthy is the Lamb. As we come to this passage that, that shows us so clearly of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, this Lamb who takes away the sin of the world, Lord, we pray that you would move our hearts and affect us yet again so that our wills would be engaged that we would be new people who move out into this world with the good news of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to leave this place singing hallelujah. What a savior. Lord, grant us this grace, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 19, verse 16. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Over the past few weeks, we have been following Jesus to various places that are so significant for us and for our salvation. These places we have traveled with Jesus are dear to us. We've been to Gethsemane and the house of Caiaphas, the Praetorium to Gabbatha, and now this morning, Golgotha. Indeed, we, we climb Golgotha's mountain this morning. And we do so to notice three things in particular. We want to notice especially what was written, what was said, and what was accomplished. But even with these three things in view, we we cannot take our mind's eye off Jesus. Pilate has condemned Jesus to death on the cross. We saw that last time. The, The entire world had joined in that condemnation in that demand that Jesus bear the divine curse, because cursed is everyone who hangs upon the tree. And and so the soldiers take Jesus and they place the cross upon him. Uh, We know from the other Gospels that that the weight of the cross was not the entire cross, um, but was likely a a crossbeam. And the weight of that crossbeam overwhelmed him, He was likely assisted in bearing that cross to Golgotha. That crossbeam, that horizontal crossbeam he carried. But it's not surprising that he would have staggered under the weight of it, is it? Because consider for a moment how much blood Jesus must have lost by this point in time. After all, his back had been flayed by the whips of the Roman soldiers who were restricted by no such law as 40 lashes minus one. They would have beaten him bloody and raw. And remember, he had that royal robe, that purple robe put upon him. And yet, by the time he takes up this horizontal cross beam, that robe has been taken off, ripped from his back where the wounds had begun to adhere to the robe, causing the blood to flow yet again. It's likely, too, that the crown of thorns is still upon Jesus' head. It had been thrust upon his brow, and the blood had begun to, to trickle down on his face throughout the scene in the, at Gabbatha. And so the blood in his eyes, stinging his eyes, making it difficult for him to see as he made his way down the way of sorrows, the so-called Via Della Rosa, on the way to Golgotha. And he climbs that hill, that hill called Skull. It's called Skull because there was a tradition that that was the place where Adam had died. His skull was there. That tradition was repeated by the early church father and preacher, the golden mouth, John Chrysostom. He said, some say Adam died there at the skull and there lies And that Jesus in this place where death had reigned, there also set up his trophy. For he went forth bearing the cross as a trophy over the tyranny of death and as conquerors do. So he bore upon his shoulders this symbol of victory. The symbol of victory. This horizontal beam he carried, he laid it down upon the vertical beam that was lying on the ground. He laid there on the instrument of his death, which he had carried from the praetorium, and they nailed his hands into the beam, and they nailed his feet 
into the, to the vertical beam, and then they raised the cross up, the four executioners, and they dropped it into the hole, causing all the weight to bear on those nail prints. And he hung there. And it was then that some noticed what was written. Do you see it? Do, do, do you notice it? That, that inscription, that, that titulus in Latin, that, that inscription that Pilate had written, written in three languages, in Latin, the language of law, Greek, the language of philosophy, in Aramaic or Hebrew, the language of religion. And what did the inscription say? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Undoubtedly, Pilate had, had written that to tweak the Jewish officials, the, the chief priests. He was, he was making a pointed example of Jesus. After all, they have just sworn, we have no king but Caesar. Now, in the person of Jesus, these chief priests, these Jewish leaders, would see what would happen to those who would have another king but Caesar. Kings are crucified because Caesar is Lord. Of course, there's a real sense in which those three languages representing law and philosophy and religion, they would all agree with, with, with what Pilate had done. The law comes and tells us that, that it is the great standard for life in this world. Philosophy comes and tells us that it's by reason alone we can determine what a good and true and beautiful life looks like. Religion comes and says, do this and you shall live. None would tolerate another Lord. Each desires to be Lord in their own sphere. None would bow the knee to Jesus. And so what Pilate is doing here putting Jesus to the death, declaring him as the king of the Jews to be crucified. Law and philosophy and even religion would agree because they cannot give up their pretensions of sovereignty. It's no wonder that when the Jews protested, the Pilate would hold firm. What I've written, I've written, he says, as though what he had written was some kind of, of sacred writ, some kind of holy word, and, and yet... And yet, Pilate wrote more than he knew. For the man on the cross was the king. The king of the Jews. The king of the Gentiles too. Against the pretensions of Caesar who claimed to be lord of all. No, that one on the cross. He was the true king. Everyone who saw him. Everyone who, who, who saw what was written, whether they were committed to the law or to philosophy or to religion, they heard the truest truth in the world. They saw written there the truest truth ever in history. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth is the King. And as the King, he was still fulfilling what was written, not, not simply what Pilate had written, but what holy men of old had written in what we call the Old Testament. For one of the executioner's prison privileges was to, to be able to have for themselves the clothing of the condemned. For, for the poor, clothing was, was their most valuable personal possession. And Jesus' seamless tunic was, was especially valuable. And so these hardened men played dice 
underneath the cross. They divvied up his belt and his head covering, his sandals, his tunic. By using bits of bone as dice. How, how horrific and odd. And yet, and yet, those executioners did more than they knew. For they fulfilled the scriptures. Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing cast lots. It's one of the several places in this scene that we see none of this is an accident. Though the executioners play games of chance, God does not. All that was happening at Golgotha, at Skull, at this rock, was happening in accordance with what was written. But notice secondly what was said. Our attention is drawn to a position near the cross. There are three Marys there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, her sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. And at some point in Jesus' suffering, does this scene occur towards the end of his suffering, around 3 p.m.? We're not sure. But at some point in Jesus' suffering, as he is enduring all of hell's agonies, and as he's drinking the cup of God's wrath down to the bottom, he opens his eyes and he looks down. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Here you see the profound compassion of Jesus. He knows that his mother will be left unprotected without her oldest son around. And so Jesus places her under the protection of his beloved friend, John. And yet, isn't there more here in these words? Isn't there more here in what Jesus says, especially to Mary? Well, I think there is. This is only the second time in John's gospel that Jesus is recorded as directly addressing his mother, Mary. Do you remember the first time? It's right there at the beginning. In John chapter 2 at the wedding feast of Cana. You remember the scene, right? They've run out of wine. The feast is not yet over. It's a, a massive social failing on the part of the host. Mary comes to Jesus to see what he might do. What does Jesus say to her? Woman. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That's what he said back in chapter 2. Here's the second time he addresses his mother. He calls her again and says, Woman, behold your son. Oh, to be sure, he's pointing her to John. But is it too much to say that Jesus is also pointing Mary's attention to himself as he hangs on the cross at this moment? Is it too much to say that Jesus is saying to her right now, Woman, behold, the hour has come. This is why I came into the world. This is why I came into your life. Behold, your son dying on the cross for the sins of the world and for your sins too. Friends, I think this double meaning is absolutely intended. It's part of the divine intention of what we should read here. 
that Mary's attention is being directed to her son who's dying for the sins of the world. And yet there are two further things said. The first is in, the first is in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Again, John tells us this was to fulfill the scripture. But which scriptures? Where? Well, the most obvious place is in Psalm 69, verse 21. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. But I wonder if Jesus didn't have another place in mind, something he had said just a few hours before. In Matthew's gospel, he records Jesus is saying, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until I drink it in the Father's kingdom. And here, what is Jesus doing? He's drinking cheap, sour wine. Yes, a sign of the new covenant is being held out to him on a hyssop branch, the very branch that God's people used to spread the blood of spotless lambs on door frames in the Passover, back in Exodus chapter 12, the very branch of which Jesus' ancestors said back in Psalm 51, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. My friends, I think he drinks the wine from the hyssop branch to fulfill his own words. The kingdom is coming in his death. His rule and reign as the king begins now. The cross is not an instrument of defeat. It's a sign of his victory. Of his victory over sin and evil and death itself. The devil and all his minions defeated and crushed. Because the king is here and he's dying for the sins of his people. He's dying for the sins of the world. He says, I thirst. And he fulfills the meaning of of it by drinking and establishing his kingdom as he's dying which is why he what he says last is so vitally important this morning verse 30 when jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit it is finished it's a single word in greek to telestai and it's actually the second time in these short verses, that, Jesus, that that word is used. John actually foreshadows in verse 28 when he says, Jesus, knowing that all was now to telestai, now was all finished, now all was accomplished. And then Jesus, after he drinks the wine, saying, my kingdom has come, it's been fulfilled, he says, to telestai, it is finished. It's been completed. All has been accomplished. What was accomplished? was finished well certainly his life was finished I mean the very next words tell you that he bowed up his head and gave up his spirit it tells us that Jesus died and yet even in his death we see his his sovereignty over all of these events was brought to a completion for he had said back in John chapter 10 no one takes my life from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. 
And in laying down his life, he was accomplishing the work that his father had given him to do. He had said earlier in John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And so say, it is finished. Jesus is the great sovereign is saying that he has completed his work. And yet, in, in, in accomplishing that work, in laying down his life as he cries out, it is finished. Isn't Jesus saying more? Isn't Jesus saying at this moment that all sacrifice is finished? After all, during these hours that Jesus hung on the cross, just to the east of the crucifixion side on a parallel is the Temple Mount. And on this particular day, on this Passover day, thousands of pilgrims were bringing their lambs and their bulls and their goats to be sacrificed. And on this very day, the high priest Caiaphas, who had said, it is good for one man to die for the people, was himself bringing the blood of the spotless lamb into the Holy of Holies, pouring that blood out on the mercy seat, making atonement for the people. And this had been going on for hundreds of years, ever since the second temple had been rebuilt. I wonder this morning how many thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lambs and bulls and goats were being sacrificed and had been sacrificed for the sins of the people. And now Jesus is saying, it is finished. It's finished. No more sacrifice for sin is needed. No more blood is required. No more pilgrimages or penances. Sacrificing is finished for I am the one perfect sacrifice for sin. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Plead my blood. Plead my sacrifice as your own. And in saying this, isn't Jesus saying not just that sacrifice is finished, but that sin itself is finished? There's nothing more to be done. There's no other place to go. Jesus offers you forgiveness, free and clear. He offers to make you clean, washed from the inside out, for the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. Not, not some sins, not most sins, not your small sins, or not just the big sins. No, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin and all sinning. So that it's not the labors of your hands that can fill, fulfill the law's demands. Could your zeal, no respite, no. Could your tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone, no. No. What can wash away your sin, my friend? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so plead the blood of Jesus this morning. And what does he say about your sin? It is finished. But doesn't that finally mean if all sacrifice is finished and your sin is done and finished, doesn't it mean that your salvation is complete and accomplished and finished? Because as Jesus hung on that cross between heaven and earth, and as the one who has drunk the cup of God's wrath down, down, down to the very dregs, isn't he declaring to the whole world at this moment, salvation is accomplished to telestai, it is finished. My friend, do you require righteousness to stand before the righteous judge? Listen, in these words, Jesus is saying to you, I've acquired it for you. 
All those who trust in me, they are declared in the right with God. They are declared justified, declared right with him, righteous with him. The judge can render no other verdict on that last day when you stand before the righteous judge other than pardoned, acquitted, and free. Do you require holiness to stand in the presence of a holy God? The one of whom uh, the angel saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Well, Jesus says to you this morning, I've acquired it for you. Because all those who trust in me are as holy as I am. Right now, you are washed and redeemed and purified and holy no matter what you've done. No matter where you've been. No matter who you are, the holy God must see you as holy if he sees you in me and with me. Do you require glory to come into the presence of the glorious one? Well, Jesus says to you, my greatest desire is for you to see my glory and for you to share in my glory. So that when you come into the presence of the glorious king, you will be arrayed with such glory that the angels in heaven, if they could, would look in jealousy upon you. Because you are so glorious, you'll be glorious in the presence of glory. My friend, all that you require has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. When he says, it is finished, he says, your salvation is complete. It's accomplished, it's finished, and it requires nothing of you. Nothing you can add, nothing you can offer, nothing you can supplement, nothing you can do. It requires nothing. Actually, it requires one thing. Just one thing. It's what the hymn writer said. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Do you need Jesus? As you stand here at Golgotha, having seen what was written, having heard what was said, I mean, realize what was accomplished. Do you feel your need of Jesus? Do you have this? Is your heart moved towards him? So that you leave this place not saying, what a savior, as though, as though Jesus is a savior for others, or he's some grand ideal of salvation, or some great teacher, but... But will you leave this place saying, hallelujah, he's my savior. And he's, he's my king. Hallelujah, he's, he's my Lord. He's my friend. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, it's the only way we can respond to this passage, to your word, is to sing with the hymn writer, hallelujah, what a savior. And in doing so, we are saying, hallelujah, you're my savior. That you would love me to this length, to this degree. Lord, I pray that that would be the case for each one of us in the room this morning. That you would cause us to shout out, worthy is the lamb. 
You are worthy, and we adore you, and we desire to offer our very lives to you because we need you. Lord, grant us this grace we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.